0: Hey Jimmy, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? It's uh, it's good to talk to you, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm so curious about how you're living these few days, right? Because your book is coming out. Like we're recording this. Like it's coming out tomorrow for us. Right. And to me, it we're, looks we're, like
1: we're in media rest right now. We're like in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> and the
1: thing is, like.
0: I've never written something that long, right, that you spend years and years on. So the the feedback cycle seems to be so long, like you get feedback on what you're doing so rarely that, I don't know, in my head, it would seem like this launch would be like this huge thing, right? But is it, is it like always anticlimactic because you kind of build it up too much? Or is it kind of like I don't know? Is it better than you expected? How is hmm. it, how you're living it, right? Because it's like New oh, York Times, funny. Wall Street Journal, Economist, even Reuters. I didn't even know they did book. reviews. I didn't even know. Yeah, they know yeah, all glowing reviews. So, how are you feeling about uh, all this, man?
1: You know, it feels it feels really good. Obviously, like you you like it when people say good things about your work. But you're right; it has this. It, there's this, <laughs> there's this weird quality of like. The way I described it to, to a couple of friends, I said, "It's like I spent five years—at this point, five years plus—assembling a really intricate stamp collection. And for the for the for the first five years, basically, nobody thought that this this stamp collection was like Jimmy's little curiosity. Like, oh, isn't it cute that Jimmy has this little stamp collection? And he thinks it's so cool, and he's learning about the captcha and like whatever. You can't shut up about this thing, right?" So you have this stamp collection, you sort of assemble it and like some really cool new stamp comes and like, you're like really excited about it, but no one else cares. And then all of a sudden the world like cares about my stamp collection. Right. And I understand why they care. I I think they care partly because of the bigger names that are attached to that, that little project. But the weird feeling is, is in that, which is like, all of a sudden you go from nothing to a lot of interest. Like you go from nothing to something. And I'm not somebody, the other, the other. By, by the way, part of that is my own fault in some sense. Like it's my own deficit as a creator, which is I don't release things like consistently enough, right? Like I barely tweet. Like I'm like pathetically bad at Instagram and LinkedIn. I mean, I'm, I'm awful at all of those. And I don't do what you do, which is like a high quality newsletter a few times a week where you get to share ideas and shape ideas as they're happening. I think if I did more of that I'd feel less like whiplash, right. Where it's like, like, Hey, this is my thing. And now the rest of the world's interested. Um, so it does feel weird in that way because the feedback comes all at once, but at the same time, like, look, I, you know, I've had like, I have friends and people like, interlocutors, people like you were, we're just in touch a lot about creativity and the process and stuff. And, and I have author friends who know what it's like to like take these like long leaps of faith and do the books for many, many years. And, um, And some of that is just what gives you sustenance through the project, right? You sort of engage, like when you and I engage with on this topic, but on other stuff, it's like fun because I can see that like maybe some of the stuff is actually probably the feedback you get with the newsletter. You can start to see that some of the things you care about, other people in the world care about too, Right. right? And like, I have that in conversations often enough that i'm like no nah, like even at the like the lowest points with the paypal project i was like no like i definitely think there's something here i was like i have a lot of friends in tech who you know like have this like the same thrill they get from writing code is the thrill i get from writing right and so i kind of had an instinct i was like this is going to work but you still have to just <laughs> you sort of have to wait until you know the thing is done um but it feels really nice like you know i i i don't think there's any other other way to describe it quite yet like it it is really affirming to see that there is still room in the culture for a book that is about building something and that you can put the spotlight, yes, on some of the people that everybody knows, but really like on a people that nobody knows and that people will still get excited about it. Frankly, like it's kind of cool just to see there's excitement about a book. Like that's cool, right? Because books are this like Gutenberg era technology, right? Meaning that I didn't do a TikTok, like like this is not, you know, like I'm not dancing. This is not this is not that kind of book. Um, I think it's also neat because the book is not. I mean, I hope it's not light. Like it, you know, it's got Descartes and Shakespeare and Turing and stuff in it. You know, Um, yeah. I think the the chess chess references. Yeah, and there's like all sorts of other like little Easter eggs and stuff buried throughout. So I'm glad to see that there's a book where you can talk about elliptic curve cryptography and you could talk about the development of the captcha and you could talk about fraud fighting and the world is still enthused about it that's really cool like to me as someone who is fundamentally a nerd like it is cool that the world can still embrace that right um i mean i think that's cool uh, i mean maybe it's just you and i think that but like i you know that's what's important right,
0: right. Just us. No, <laughs> uh, but I, I can see a parallel right because different mediums have, have different pros and cons so What's great about the newsletter is like every, every couple of days I hit publish and I get some feedback, mm-hmm. right? So that's a very short loop. Um, I think last time we, we spoke, we talked about how a bunch of books will probably never get written because a bunch of writers just start doing podcasts and they right, find that just more gratifying, right. right? It's just like, yeah, I, I hit publish and I immediately like have some feedback. Well, what you're doing with, with this book is there's a parallel to me what, what you did with what the PayPal guys did, right? It's almost like oh, building your company. Because you're spending yeah. years and years without success, right? Because it's not out yet. You, you, for for the first like, I don't know, quarter of the book, they don't even have a product,
1: no, right? They have nothing. <laughs> they, they, they
0: they raise all this You've money. Got and they got a hundred thousand dollar bridge coding. loan
1: from Peter, you know, and, exactly. and a little and Elon's personal investment in X.com.
0: And and nothing is working. They can't show anything to anyone, and like. The, the, Peter Thiel is trying to get a bunch of media attention, and it's all about like, well, we may build this thing later. It's going to do all, and same for Elon. So what you're doing is, is to me feels more like like writing a book is more like an entrepreneur that's going to have to like have this this crossing of the desert like for a long time. It's mm. very it's very hard, and you hope there's like something on the other side. So that, that's part of what is kind of like very that's admirable fun, yeah. and very scary about books, right? Because if I wrote a book, what can I think about? That I could spend years on, right? So, <laughs> So I I think maybe it's a specialized animal, like we're
1: different species. I don't know, but it's cool to me. I think I I would say, yeah, I'll offer a couple of different perspectives just so people don't think that it's some kind of heroic narrative, right? Part, Part of it is like what you have that I don't have is you have the courage to be able to put ideas out consistently without feeling like you need to finesse them a hundred times before you put them out. Right. And so like, that actually takes a fair amount of courage. Like It's the reason I can't tweet. I, mean, I like, can't tweet to save my life. Right. Cause I get so nervous that I'm going to get something wrong or something something stupid or like something's going to be out of place where like, if I haven't actually like revised and thought about it a lot and let read, like all the research papers and try to contact every person on the planet, I just feel a lot of anxiety. Like it, it's, it's why these things take so long is because I just don't, I don't have that, that, gene that allows me to just share, know that it's half formed, get feedback, and then go back and like do the thing. I have to do a lot of that privately. And I don't know, that's probably like disposition and personality and stuff. But I actually admire what you do, which is thoughtful, but consistent. That way, you're like always iterating and always getting feedback, which actually your your thing is, it is a startup, but it's more of a startup than what I do, right? Because that is actually like part of the lesson from the PayPal book is the the value of this rapid, you know, regrowth all the time. And like sort of like moving very agilely to fix things. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's virtues to all of these forms, right? Like I admire the people who are good at these other formats. It just happens that like, I, here's, here's one other way I think about it, which you might think about your newsletter the same way. So people will ask me the question, like, why do books, right? In an age of like, whatever, you could do like a million other things. And part of what I, what I explain is, you know, with the Claude Shannon book and with this book, I always found that like, there might've been two really great stories, but they were in sources that would never intersect or overlap, right? So it was almost like you had like, I mean, it was a, like this book is a scrapbook. It's a narrative book, but where it really is, is like a collection of stories from just like every freaking place on the planet, right? And so uh, actually, and by the way, I mean that quite literally, the people I interviewed cut across. I mean, I was a minimum of five time zones, probably closer to like 10 time zones, right? So I was interviewing wow. people in Germany. I interviewed people in India, I interviewed people in Singapore, I interviewed people in Omaha, Nebraska, Palo Alto, New York. And so the idea was always that I had this sense in my mind, and maybe this is true for you too, where it's like part of what you do when you create something like this is just like you get excited about one person or one story. And then you find out that in some book that was published 10 years ago, there's this other crazy story. And you're like, oh my God, these stories have never been put in one place before. How can that possibly be? And then you sort of set out to like fuse them together, right? I don't know if you think about your newsletter or process that way at all.
0: Uh, about PayPal specifically, it, it, I think you've made that, that parallel too. It's like kind of like Bell Labs, right? It's a bunch of people. So if you're writing about Apple so much of apple is like the dna of steve jobs basically his personality so if you follow the guy if you look at his interviews if he was still alive you could interview him and you could get a sense but when when it's a group of people a kind of institution or organization like as you say that that story is probably not going to be told or at least not as easily because nobody is all of the pieces right it takes one person in the center to say like okay i'm gonna find these you know maybe i don't know 15 main players and then 100 like secondary players all around them and back that, that kind of stuff like it blows my mind and I'm also curious because uh, I've read your great book about Cloud Channel, and it's, it's very different and I'm like how, how much of a geek were you at the beginning right because you're writing about all these programmers <clears throat> and engineers and guys who spend like all their time playing video games and, and coding all night and so th- did that feel kind of like a native language for you were you al- already kind of like into that world or did you look at it like more
1: from the outside I, I probably should declare this more at the outset right so part of I grew up Assembling and disassembling computers, like in the like PC days, where you had a box and it was sort of like your hot rod if you're a nerd, right? I grew up not programming, but I learned, you know, basic and C plus plus and a little bit of Java. And I went to like summer like kind of programs for for basic computer programming. I was really into video games, right? Like I sort of grew up playing like uh, Duke Nukem and Starcraft and all of that. My people. So then, so, Exactly. So then, when Ed Ho, who was one of the people who was early at Zip2, which was Elon's first startup, and moved to X.com in the very early days, when he talks about StarCraft, I know exactly what he's talking about. Right. And like, And, and it's so, it's actually so fun to engage with people where I'm like, I get this. Like, I know what it means to stay up all night playing Starcraft because I did that. Right. Like, I mean, that was a thing my friends and I did. We got all of our computers. We'd bring them all over to one house. We'd set them up on a LAN and I was always Protoss. And my friend, Mike was always Zerg. And the challenge was always like, can Mike get his Zerg rush off before I build my photon cannon? Because if I can build my photon cannon, he's screwed. Cause then I'll just. (laughs) I'm a, I'm a Terran. So we should get together with your friend and play some games. But it's so it's
0: specific too, right? Because from the outside, if you're not a gamer and you hear these names, it's like, oh, games, yeah, video games. It's one right. thing, but it's like saying investors, right? It's very different to be a high-frequency trader or long-term investor. So gamers are very different. And so when I yes. hear that, like uh, Toby from Shopify plays Starcraft and Factorio, I know exactly right. what that means, right? He's like a systems thinker and strategy guy, and and it fits with his personality. So when you hear about Elon, like okay, he was super competitive playing Street Fighters or whatever, but he was like, some of these guys were also like strategy games and this, I I feel this is very formative. This is not just like they wasted their time doing that kind of stuff. No. I used to build maps for these games, like for Starcraft and Doom and Quake. And a lot of the the map building that I did taught me about like design and like UI and UX for websites later on and for even that kind of company building, right? When you're building something from nothing, a blank page, right? So all that stuff, I find is too often overlooked by everybody that treats everything as just everything that's not serious, quote unquote, is like right. not important, but like what books you read, what TV shows
1: you watch, what games you played, all that stuff is like part of the software in your brain to me. Well, and, and if you think about it, like how many, how many stories or, or like things are written about the formative effect that high school sports or middle school sports or like early collegiate sports might have on somebody. Right. So you you know there's all these things like written about athletes where they'll go back and figure out like what were they like in high school or what were they like in college right um or i mean just generally in the culture we accept that like making a decision to do sports at that level will affect your kind of character in some way video games are the same like it's just like you know i was a huge nerd and like would play a lot of games and my friends did too and it was it was a mix of you know just enjoyment, like it was like what we decided to spend our time doing, right? Instead of doing other things. But I also, you know, I found this, I found this ad in the when I was doing my research in the Queen's student newspaper. Queens is the first university that Elon attends, and it was an ad for this for one of his first companies. It was, it was called Musk Computer Consulting. And it took me a while to find it. And it was he was assembling word processors, like early word processors and early computers. And I remember not consciously, but certainly subconsciously or maybe, con- yeah, consciously thinking like, you know, like I remember putting a new video card in to a computer and like, <laughs> yes. or, or attaching one of the cables to the hard disk and like thinking like, damn, this is so cool. and feeling that level of connection with the technology that was in my life where like, dude, come on now, like I have a MacBook, And if you, if you like, if anything goes wrong with it, I'm totally, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. I like you to get specialized screwdrivers and it requires a net team of NASA engineers to like figure it out. Like I, I suppose that I found an affinity in this group for, for two things. One was this sort of generalized like nerdiness and, and tech stuff and video game playing and all of that. And the other was like, so many of them were immigrants and so I know what it means to grow up in a house where like people are speaking English with accents or people aren't speaking English at all, right? Where right. like you're a little bit, you're always a little bit like one foot in one world, one foot in the other, right? Or you always feel, you're always playing life without a safety net because there's not some relative's house you can go to if something goes wrong. Like I, so it was my upbringing, my upbringing too, right? So when I read the stories of like, you know, Elon's arrival to the United States or, or Max's arrival, which actually is more dramatic, leaving the Ukraine, coming to the United States and him having to learn English, I remember like I, you know, I did that when he, I was a little younger than he was. Like I did it when I was five. But I remember thinking, like, I get these people like these. Like I, I get what it means to be a fish out of water in the United States, not just like a fish out of water because you're a nerd, but you're a fish out of water because you're a nerd. Plus, you're an immigrant. Um, and I remember thinking like I I kind of I was like, I kind of get this. Like, I know what this feels like now. I can't I'm not. They are at a sort of different league in many dimensions, right? But I do think like there's this old joke among the people who do the sort of work that I do, like all biography is autobiography, right? So actually <laughs> like you're just drawn to subjects that you find like can explain some part of your life. And like, I wasn't doing that consciously. I fell into this book in a lot of ways we've talked about and I've talked about in other places, but of uh, like it it is there is something about nerds where like you can sense a fellow nerd and you're like you're a nerd like the it's nerd dar like, right I, I I was like you, you 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 we like I I sort of got it I was like oh if Ed Ho is saying you know I'm talking about StarCraft games I'm like all right like I can hang with these people for a little bit at least um but then I you know but then obviously like these projects evolve as they evolve I feel like the games are one part and I think
0: maybe it was in Ashley Vance's bio of Elon but. They also talked about how much science fiction influenced him. Yeah. When you look at his view of the world, it's like Asimov and like Ian Banks and like even his his jokes with the culture ships. He gives these drone ships where the the SpaceX uh, rockets land, they all have names from the culture books, from uh, Ian Mm -hmm. Banks' sci-fi books. And I'm like, this has shaped his view of the world. He sees himself as a kind of science fiction hero that's like, I want to provide a better future for humanity. And he's like thinking in these terms, right? Right. But- there's a chicken and egg thing, right? You don't get to do huge things if you don't have the ambition at the start, if you don't even think in these scales. And so like take Elon and make him not read these books as a kid. And maybe it's totally different. All that kind of stuff, like the same with the games, right? It's like, it's it's the butterfly flapping its wings. You never know what small kind of stuff is going to totally change your life later. One other thing, like kind of the same topic, like about writing these huge projects that takes years and you interviews hundreds of people, which as an introvert would be tough, but like, how do you keep it in your head, right? Because when mm. I'm writing a short piece, it's like, it's in the RAM up there, right? I kind of have the whole thing in my head. But with a, such a large project over many years, do you have like a big note system. Are you loading like <laughs> by like modules, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm focusing on like Elon in early 90s right now. And then later I'll move right. on to like someone else. And what's the kind of yeah, process keep to keep it all, all together? together? Yeah, 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 when you're reading it, it's kind of linear, but to you, it's not linear at all.
1: Maybe the first thing you find out is the last thing in the book, right? Right. And in fact, like it's actually one of, and I describe this kind of at the end, it's like one of the limits of these books, right? You sort of, every person who does this book needs to start out with a massive disclaimer, which is lives aren't lived linearly, you know, in the the sense that like, I am going to tell the story in a certain way, but the way I put it in the book is if I'm writing about one scene in one cubicle, I'm not describing what's happening in the next cubicle over. So there's always a narrative fallacy. Like I've presented this as a beginning, middle, end, but it's really like hundreds of stories being lived in all these like different directions. But to more precisely answer your question, so I do, I I mean, my process is idiosyncratic, but I think all of these processes to do these projects are, there's no formula, right? So my, um, the the sort of mothership for me is a a piece of software called Scrivener. Um, So Scrivener, a lot of novelists use it. Like I do know some long form nonfiction people use it, but it's basically like where I put semi-written or somewhat written things like in and and what's nice about their ux just to nerd out for a second like on the left they have these they have this really cool set of folders right and like the the folder's Exist side by side with the screen that you're writing in, and what the folders allowed me to do was I literally just like had folders like 1990, I like pre-story 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, post 2002. So I had all these folders, and then within those, you sort of nest even more folders. Like, okay, you know, this is Levchin at UIUC, this is Teal at Stanford, this is you know Julie Anderson in Omaha, right? Okay, let's like like we'll build these folders out. And what I would do is I would just kind of visually you can track like okay i've done way too much on 1999 i got to like go down and do some of the other stuff you can also quickly sort like if like let give me give me an example i interviewed this the most, one of the best interviews i did which actually doesn't get much attention in the book but it, i like hope to do something with it later i interviewed this guy daniel chan who worked at the company so briefly he was like a business development person i think he might have even been an intern for the company and he became a magician later in life. His professional life now, is he's like a magician. To like oh. to like big companies in Silicon Valley. It's like a huge deal. And he worked at the company briefly and regretted leaving. But his job at the company was that he would take coins that were sent back to the company and deposit them at the bank. And so I did this whole riff on like Daniel, the magician and random deposit, right? And the riff that's in the book is probably like a paragraph, but my actual like research and like kind of understanding, and like interviewing themselves is a lot longer, but I could just create a little scrap of of a file, toss it in a folder, Daniel Chan, magician. I knew that that story was happening in 2000, so I could nest it in the 2000 folder. And then you just kind of build like the raw material. You gather all the string to to weave into something, but I do that with Scrivener. When I start writing chapters, purely most... I mean, not purely, but a lot of paranoia, I do it in Google Docs. Um, and I'll sort of like create... What I'll do is I'll copy and paste all the stuff from Scrivener over to a Google Doc. And it'll just be like a massive material. I mean, like 30 pages, single space of material, right? And I then am like able to shape it and able to cut things and move things around, make decisions, et cetera. All of those chapters are linked to in a Google Sheets doc which has versions across the top. And so I'll have like, you know, chapter one and then across the top, like V1, V2, V3, V4, all the way on. And so that way I always know like, okay, here's where like, maybe I liked version two of this better. There was some story I can remember in the back of my head, right? Side by side with all of those systems is a system to organize interviews and like transcriptions and stuff. And for that, what's helpful is just, you know, straight like Google Drive plus this software called Otter. Otter.ai Save my bacon, man. I mean, Otter, Otter.ai does uh, AI-based transcriptions of audio files. Hmm. And it's only like 10 bucks a month and it's amazing. And it's like, you know, if you use Rev, like, or one of these like paid for services where they have a human being interacting with the content, you'll get a lot higher quality transcript maybe, but you will have to pay a lot for it. this was like, for somebody who's like writing on a budget, like this was 10 bucks a month. (laughs) And I was like, it was like, great, this is perfect. And I could incorporate, like it, it helped me, you know, cause it's interesting when you're writing, you're seeing things on the page and in the ear. And so when I was listening to the interviews I did, I'd see like the text and I'd be able to listen to it. And their UX is just so good. They've designed an insanely good mobile app. Like I am I am an unabashed and I'm not affiliated with them. I'm just like a total fan of what Otter has built. I think they've done some of the best work in this space and maybe there are better tools out there. But like for me, that worked really well. So Otter helped with the audio. It helped with the transcriptions. And then I kept sort of a separate system of organization. And then the final piece, you know, is just for projects like this is just outreach. You don't want to be the person that's annoyingly in everybody's inbox all the time. You have to stagger your outreach. You have to make sure that you contacted everybody. I didn't want to just have this be the story of the people at the top of the company. But in order to do that, I had to make a list and like made epic lists of like employees. And that, that's a whole... So those are three structures that I built just to keep everything, keep everything sane. To me, it almost looks like like a FBI agent,
0: like making profiles on people, <laughs> and you're kind of tailing them. But instead of following their cars, like you're tailing them through time, right? You're looking at like the breadcrumbs from like years ago on archives.org or whatever. And and then if you interview someone first, and then you interview someone else later, that gives you good info for questions you would have asked the first person. You go back and then loop around, and because because that too is is kind of like you have to interview people linearly. But what you learn could be
1: useful, like <laughs> for yeah. early interviews. No, it's super, it's like, it's one of the hardest things about a project like this. Um, you, you have the, like what you just described, you're just describing like the stress of the last five years, which <laughs> is about, you know, maybe like two years in, I find somebody, I have a great interview with them. They tell me something, it's amazing. But now that like has to lead me to go back. So the, the way I treated it just to get into the process, is we're talking process and we're just like, this is what you and I do anyway over Twitter. We're just doing what we do over Twitter, just on a podcast. Um so here's, here's how I would approach it. Some of the people I was asking questions of are some of the busiest people on planet earth, right? And I mean that like quite literally, like they just have more things to do in a day or a week than most of us do. Right. And I, you, you have to balance being somebody who can, I can reach out with questions, but also not being the person that they just look at the inbox and I'm like, oh God, that guy again, you know, like you don't want to be that guy. And so I was always super judicious. So here's what I did. I would create little documents where if a key, per, if I had a question for a key person, I would list the question in that document so that I could go back and ask everything, like batch processing, right? I was sort of batch processing my inquiries, right? Meaning I might've interviewed 10 engineers that worked with Max Levchin who gave me five things that Max and I didn't talk about. And so what I would do is I would create a little list. and It was like Max Levchin, you know, dash, dash, next interview. And I would just toss things into those documents So that for a guy who's like running a public company, has a family, has like a million people in his ear, and day-to-day journalists are hitting him up. I wasn't the guy who was just like emailing all the time and asking you know questions that are so random. I would save my time and I would treat it like I'd prep rank ordered, like (laughs) this is really funny. I actually had like a little like in my Google Docs, I would have like I'd have like the list of questions. And then I was like, I had a separate, like a section called if there's time and then colon. And then I would like have other questions, meaning I rank ordered the priority of them. I, I didn't, here's the thing. I didn't have any knowledge about how to do this. I sort of made some of this up as I went along, but the basic operating principle I think is a really good operating principle, which is like have a healthy respect for people's time. Right. Just like, like if you're, if you're Max Levchin or you're David Sachs, like, I am the last thing to do on a very long to-do list. I'm the easiest meeting to bail on. And so if I get a half hour, let's like make the half hour count. Now they were all really generous. Like what's surprising to me is like, actually they were very interested in talking and we would have long conversations, but I never went in expecting that. I always went in expecting like, now you got to be efficient. Like, let's not like, just don't mess around. Like, this is not time for you to get to know them. I don't, you know, these are not people I know personally very well. It was I'm there because I have specific questions and then we're going to get to the media stuff quickly so that like, if things go well, I can ask all the secondary stuff, but that's how I managed the thing of like, oh, crud, somebody told me this great story, but now I got to go back and like ask. And I, by the way, the other thing is I didn't get it all right. I didn't get to go back and ask all the questions I wanted to ask like later, but I just had to make decisions kind of live about what worked and what didn't work. One thing I wonder about is because a lot of these
0: guys are just, yeah, I know, but high-profile people generally are kind of skeptical, right, of journalists and writers and, like, how you going to make me look. Like, I think, I wonder if there's less of that when you're writing about something, like, 20 years ago. Like, are they, like, I I like talking with you, I'm reliving the glory days. Like, it's like when a bunch of old friends get around and they talk about, like, high school or something. Like, I, I wonder if this type of book kind of, like, made them come out of their, their, their shell or whatever more because of that aspect. But if you were writing about like a firm or about like, like I don't know what Peter Deal is doing these days or about SpaceX, like there's maybe more defensiveness because they're in the middle of it, right? It's still like, it, the story's not over yet. So uh, I don't know, bad publicity or something could cause damage.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, look, I, I admire and don't know how like daily journalists do what they do, meaning like keeping tabs on everything these people are working on day to day. I don't think I would have been able to get uh, in the room with these folks. I'm just not knowledgeable, right? I don't know anything about it. I'm not the person who covers a firm for CNBC, I'm not the person who covers SpaceX for ours and Technica. Um, who by the way, one of the people who does Eric Berger is really great. And he wrote a really great book on SpaceX. So people should go read that because it's awesome. The early days, his early days of SpaceX book is really, really good. I don't have the obligation of daily coverage. And in some ways that also freed me up to to come in without asking them anything that was about what they were doing today. In some ways, like I was the weird person in their lives who was asking about college and asking about post-college decision-making, right? And so you're absolutely right. Like, I got super lucky that I'm not talking about something that they are specifically on edge about or like, oh, this could, you know, whatever. That said, I also, they knew and they, they A, respected, like, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to write what I see and learn and hear. And the other piece of it also uh, is that no one tried to kind of like tip the scales in their favor one way or the other. Like, I, I wasn't going to have a relationship, for example, where I sent the book out, months before, you know, it was like, it wasn't the thing where like someone saw it and had script approval or whatever. Right. I did a lot of fact-checking. I did a lot of following up and like conversations about, Hey, this is how this person described the scene. I have these documents, but could you give me more, you know, that sort of stuff. But I just read that as like rigorous fact-checking and fact-finding. Um, they, you know, it's, I, I'd be lying if I, part of it is like, I, I'm really lucky that I was writing about something that happened 20 years ago. Part of it is, my conception of this project was a little different than I think maybe how some people approach book projects. I wasn't expecting there to be some smoking gun or dirty secret or big scandal. Right. Right. Meaning, meaning my questions were about how did the capture work? (laughs) 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 Right. Like, like walk me through fraud fighting. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a like oh my god there's fraud and that's terrible and we've got to blow the whistle on it because there's no blo- whistle to blow the whistle blew 20 years ago
0: right too many people there, are like looking for drama right where there's yeah, not necessarily and I, some
1: and 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 maybe and I think there's a healthy and vital role for that within like a, a, a democracy with a free press you need that because it keeps bad things in check yeah. but my the, the positioning of this project from the beginning has been, Hey, you got you know, you went from financial services superstore, x.com, mobile encryption company Confinity to PayPal. And a lot of you built things during that period that were interesting. How did you build them and how does that process happen? Um, and what did you learn along the way? So, in a way, like the explicit positioning of the book was I am way more interested in like infrared money beaming and how you go from that to email than I am in like somebody's lunch order that day, right? Um, that's, and I I suppose that's just, again, it's a, it's a reflection of personality. Like I think finding out how things are made is just very, very cool. I will drive around and I'll see something and I'll want to know how it's made. I wanted to know how PayPal was made. That's just like, it's just a thing of like, I kind of think this is interesting.
0: It's a story we're telling though, because a lot of the modern world is kind of built on stuff that PayPal was in very early. Like they had, they they were obsessed with these pound device, right? That's, that's mobile is like, everything today, but they were kind of seeing it coming. The the fact that you can spend money on the internet that it became kind of a commercial enterprise because in in the 90s it was kind of like a huge deal to put your credit card numbers into a browser, right? Right. But 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 they were super early dealing with all that kind of fraud and stuff. Like just your chapter about how they had these these brilliant viral incentives where you know you give a referral money to the person signing up and you give money to the the people that they sign up with their code. Right. And so you had these eBay sellers making tons of money because at that time like so few buyers were already on PayPal that you could sign up people all day. So just, just those kinds of stuff, like thinking about these incentives, about how it's a foundation for the modern world, like, or even just the fact that the killer feature was kind of an accident. Like I see that again and again with companies. Like, I think I think Twitter was kind of a side project. Slack also, like even Shopify was kind of supposed to be a snowboard shop, right? But then you figure out that the code, the store was, was <laughs> much more important than selling the snowboards. So, so all that stuff to me is like, these, these kind of archetypical recurring stories and foundations of the modern world. And, and so the book, someone who's listening to this is like, yeah, uh, uh, PayPal, like, I don't care about PayPal. It's like, no, no, it's not about PayPal. It's about the modern world, basically, like seen through the lens of a bunch of people really important in shaping it.
1: You know, the, the part of it too is like, we live in a world where code can be antiseptic. It can be like perceived as antiseptic, right? Meaning like, like we, we, we look at a website And we don't realize that there's like a whole sequence of choices that went into building that website or that app and how much work and effort that takes, how much time, frustration, energy, late nights, lots of stress, lots of grief, lots of uncertainty. Right. And so to me, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to like lay it on too thick because the book is a book that fundamentally just tries to accurately tell the narrative. But part of what's interesting to me is we have this tendency to like take technology for granted. We take for granted like, how much we can do and how incredible it is that we have what we have. Limitless access to information, the ability to call a car to your doorstep just by pushing a button on a tiny little device that is like you know, the size of an index card. The, the, the mere fact, frankly, that I could write a book and that it lives on word processors and Google-like documents so that it never gets erased. I think back to like what my predecessors who do history had to do, which was like typewriters and paper and pencil and ink and losing drafts and like not being able to edit so quickly. And I, I wrote Shannon, the Shannon book, Rob and I often talked about it. Like, wow, isn't it like, isn't it amazing that like we don't have more gratitude for something like this. Right. Meaning that like, actually like the, the, the being grateful for this is like something important. I'm not sure I don't have that message in the book, but it's certainly a part of the identity of doing this kind of book is like, wow, like we've gone from dial up internet and like barely being able to be online to you and I are having a zoom meeting. We've never met before in person and we've developed like a friendship and a relationship around ideas, right? That's incredible. and and I I think awe, like being awestruck or like awe in general is a is is good. like, Why not have more of it in your life? And honestly, like part of it is like, I think, I'm sure you've experienced this, like kids are awestruck all the time. And I have a kid and she's six and she finds things, she's awestruck all the time. And I am in some ways so envious of her ability to have awe about things. Part of the middle of the book, if it gets into the weeds on how PayPal got its name or how you made the infrared money beaming work or why it was interesting to focus on buttons as the trajectory that's going to create virality is because it's super easy to take something like a button on the internet for granted. And we really shouldn't. We live in an incredible, extraordinary time. I just think that sometimes like a lens needs to be put on that so that you can understand that it's not just that somebody came up with an idea. It's that... Max Legend and Reed Hoffman were up late at night. And Reed pushed Max and said, wait, this palm pile thing's not going to be great. And Max is like, well, I don't know. Like, let's just do an email money companion. And then, like, that's the spark that helps that these things take root. I feel like there is no downside to cultivating a healthy appreciation for the fruits of technology, especially when we have so many of them. We, we so easily take them for granted. For sure. I feel like we've reached with a lot of things, we've reached the Arthur C. Clark level
0: where uh, any technology sufficiently advances and indistinguishable from magic, right? It's like you, you have right. your phone to a kid like that grew up with it. It's so easy to take for granted. And that's that's part of what I, I try to do a lot in the newsletter and in my life in general. It's just like take a moment to figure out how stuff works and appreciate it because all these super magical stuff, right? Like like even like the, the amount of gene sequencing humanity has been doing in the past couple of years, right? I, I, I read somewhere that uh, in March 2020, New York City had the, the capacity to do like 120 sequences a day. Wow. Like, the, 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 how we've all that stuff, like, it doesn't just happen, right? A bunch of people spend no, sleepless yeah. night working on it and figuring out the tiny details and the work of one builds on the work of the other. And I don't know. I, I just find appreciation for that is kind of like just recalibration because I feel humanity has this, this kind of mode where we get used to stuff really, really quickly. Which is an advantage because then you want more, right? It, right? it pushes us to try to do better, faster, higher, like the next thing. But there can be too much of that too, right? Where 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 you adapt so quickly to something that you take it for granted. And and I don't know, you kind of miss all of the super sci-fi future we're living into and we don't even realize it. Like if 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 you I could go back to like 12-year-old myself, and show him everything I've, I, I have access to today. The computers, the games, the, the mobile devices, the the satellites, like, guiding me when I'm driving my cars, all that stuff, right? That's that's super cool, but I don't know. People don't see it anymore.
1: Well, and I think a part of it, like, it's like we do become accustomed to things, which makes us want to build and create new, more interesting things. So it's adaptive, right, in some yep. some way that, like, our baseline gets improved. What What I think is also interesting... And something you and I touch on a lot is problem solving processes. To me, like they aren't necessarily like reconfigured because new technology. Well, that's not true, actually. I would say there's value in appreciating that the problem style of problem solving that leads to successes, there's lessons or clues from that that be, can be carried forward. Right. And so, like there are examples from from the problem solving that was done at PayPal that have remained with me in like other things I've done, right? Whether it's like a writing problem or whatever. I also think that, like the 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 habits or the manners or even some of like the psychological predisposition of people who do that is really interesting to explore. Meaning, it's not like someone designing a mobile app is going to look back at what I wrote about the code for right, the, creating the code for PayPal and maybe learn anything of real value because writing because programming has moved forward so fast. But there's a line in there from Eric Klein about it. He says. We 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 were predisposed to invent instead of research and implement, meaning he said that even in standups today, he's like, I'm often thinking like, what's an invention that could solve us, out of, get, get our way out of this, as opposed to researching and implementing? And do I think that's going to be some like grand principle that applies in every situation? No, but it's a pretty cool way to think about problem solving, meaning what is an invention instead of like, let me go Google and then find the answer. And he was speaking about it at the at meaning he was speaking about it, what they were doing in 1999, 2000, but he said it carried forward for him for many decades that like, that's actually an interesting way to approach problem solving. I think some of those underlying, like, how did you figure this out type stuff is actually really, really cool, right? Um, it's, it's sort of like it has resonance way beyond the specific moment. Yeah, one of those I got from the book.
0: And I kind of kind of already felt it, but the book really made it clear to me, like, with Elon, everybody talks about his first principle thinking, right? It's he, he, very physics background. And it's like, instead of reasoning by analogy, where you look at what's already existing, and then you try to make it 10% better, you go back from the beginning. And it's like, how much do the atoms cost to build a rocket? And then like what's the lowest cost that we can configure these atoms the way we want? Like That's that's very rare kind of thinking. It's not intuitive to most people. and But everybody has heard about that. But the other thing about Elon I got from your book is that even from his early 20s, the guy understood the importance of like high velocity of tempo of like time all the time he's like we have to do this now like in, in six months like it's going to be too late people are going to take an advantage it's, it's like reminds me of uh, john boyd I wrote about the ooda loop in the army where if you can be faster than your enemy you can orient yourself faster integrate the lessons faster like make decisions faster your loop is kind of running faster than the enemy so you can you can like bounce back from problem and and find new opportunity and you're just moving so much faster that people just can't catch up with you, right? And it's kind of like what he's done with all of his companies. It's like he, he comes out with the, the, the roadster and all the big car companies, like, oh, yeah, toy for rich people. It's like, okay, the Model S, well, it's a great car, but like it's 100,000. Like, but today, the, the other car companies are still trying to catch up with the 2012 Model S, basically, right? And, and in the meantime, it's like there's superchargers everywhere. There's a Model tree, the Model X, the Model Y. Like he's just keeping moving so fast that, you know, even if he, he, he you know breaks a bunch of stuff and makes a bunch of mistakes and all that the, the the value of this this velocity is still incredibly high, and I think it's kind of underestimated by by many people like that that's not this one thing I look at companies like how quickly are you iterating on your products what's the the you know the the release cycle for software or this or that it's like it's it's like one of the down the problems with intel these past few years has been that they've kind of lost that tempo right they everything is taking longer than they expect and this and that And if t s m c just keeps Chugging along at, at at the pace that they've set, like Intel is falling further behind every year, and now when you have to catch up on top of just going the same rate as as someone like TSMC, how hard is that? Like, you see, you, there's a parallel for Elon and his competitors there. So anyway, that, that's one thing that
1: just jumped at me from the no book. the velocity. The velocity makes. I mean, it's a huge difference maker. You know, you, I can't do a better job of describing it than you did. Just the very very. It operates at every level in the story. It operates personally, meaning these people just tend to be tend to move very fast and be impatient. It operates when they're a much when they're a small team, meaning that the goal is just like get things built, get things moving quickly, and get things shipped. And then even as they start to mature and become an organization of several hundred people, you know David Sachs, like he's pretty insistent on like small meetings. Like if you there's no need for a meeting with more than X number of people. Um, they built a culture that prioritized this kind of speed. And part of that was they just felt like they were always under the gun, that there were always opponents or or some force that was going to be able to, to undo their success. Um, I, I think it's still true today. I think that they all move at a very, very, very rapid clip. I will say that one of the things that was interesting was just seeing how many of these people speak quickly. Like they, they talk very fast, right? Now I talk fast too, but I noticed that sort of like even in interviews I'd done for this versus let's say interviews I'd done with academics for the Claude Shannon book, just the words per minute were, <laughs> were a lot, were a lot quicker for these folks. Um, I, I don't know that, you know, that it's any different from any other contemporary startup and that the sort of move fast thing is it's so true. It's such a, it's such a truism and it's moved to the level of cliche. Right. Um, I I think the first principles thinking is harder to do in reality than people say, meaning I think a lot of people say that they are first principles thinkers, but they actually aren't like to be a true first principles thinker, you know, you have to really sort of like, like what Elon said to me about money was like, money is a system for exchanging information, right? Meaning you really begin from what sort of the place money is. And he says, people think money have, has power in and of itself, but it doesn't. Like what a fascinating sort of way to, to think about the world, right? The world through that lens is a world in which everything is subject to what, well, so let's go back, right? So let's start from the start. From the start. I know I don't live or think that way, but I found it to be very useful. I'll give you an example. You know, I wrote this book and part of the tail end of writing it was that there was a pandemic that happened in the middle. We, I I created a little tiny little startup, which was a a school for my daughter and for five other families in my neighborhood. And we pulled, you know, we pulled all of our kids out of the, the, I sort of knew like in March of 2020, the New York public school system was already struggling. It was going to be a really hard year for everyone. I kind of just got a sense. I was like, this is not like remote school given the work I do is not going to be really feasible. So we had, I had a friend I contacted him. We got a group together. We interviewed teachers. We hired teachers. We retrofitted my living room with all this like fold away Scandinavian furniture so that the, the, these, the small group of girls could have a school experience. I'm not the only one who did this. And God knows we made mistakes here and there, but it was really interesting to like, sort of go back and think to yourself, like first principles, what is a school, <laughs>
0: right? right? Fundamentally,
1: like, what is a school? A school is a small collection of people who are roughly around the same age, someone who has the, the, uh, the desire, the passion, the conviction and the, the kind of training to teach them and then sort of like finding ways to teach them and to keep that process sort of smooth and interesting. And then everything else is like negotiable and debatable, right? Like all the other uh, arguments become somewhat like kind of abstract or not abstract, they become somewhat immaterial. Like, can you get a small group of people together in one room with a person whose job it is to teach them and uh, figure out everything else around them? And I remember thinking like, oh, this is sort of like I, I ran a little startup while writing about a startup, right? This startup just happened to be this school. And it was it was fascinating. It was a hugely interesting process. I mean, I'm describing something that, again, is like a very small version of what I'm sure your listeners go through who are building companies. But I, I just to get back to the point, which is, it's very easy, I think, to say that you're a first principles thinker. It's a lot harder to say, let us begin with what money is. And then I'm (laughs) going to build my company from that basis, right? let us, let us begin from there. (laughs) Yeah. The
0: human brain is trying to save energy all the time. Like if it can avoid thinking it it will. So if there's someone else doing kind of what you want to do, like automatic mode is like cut and paste, right? Oh, I'm going to do it this way. And you can, you can learn a lot this way. You can, you can go much faster. You can go up the learning curve faster. That's, that's great there's kind of a ceiling on that, right? There's kind of like, okay, you may do great at what others are doing, but if you're trying to do much better, if you're trying to do something new, if you're trying to invent something that way, that way will, will not get you there most of the time. Right. Uh, Right. It's also so interesting how you talk about this as kind of like a business because the word business, like if you can abstract it even more, like just there's, like getting a bunch of people together to do something, to achieve a goal, like that's kind of, that's super fractal, right? You can look at right. Apple with tens of thousands of employees and they run into some of the similar problem as a, as an homeschool school or as a tiny startup or as a 200 year old company that's changing management and has to deal with culture. And it's like, it's always the same few simple things that are coming over and over. They're simple, but they're super hard, right? It's like, are we providing value to the customers? Are we getting better faster than our competitors or are they catching up to us and, and, you know, leaving us behind? Are they this and that? Are we keeping our employees? Are we this? Like, there's a bunch of problems that are kind of the same in all these organizations. It's, it's so, so interesting to think about how these skills are, are so transferable, I guess.
1: Yes. Oh, I think 100%. And it's actually what was interesting. So, there's a, a gentleman named David Wallace who I interviewed who was very, very early at Convivity. He was a journalist. He left journalism, joined to do customer service, to oversee customer service of the company. After he leaves PayPal, David actually creates a, a he creates a schools. So he creates like a network of schools um, in the in the aftermath of, of his time at PayPal. Daniel Chan becomes a magician. Um, you know, Ken Howery became ambassador to, to Sweden. There's a gentleman I interviewed, his name is Premal Shah. He founded a micro lending website called Kiva.org. Um, you know, uh, just on and on. What was so interesting was also that these people, I think, uh, maybe maybe half consciously or or maybe subconsciously or perhaps consciously, took these experiences of like, wait, what if we just begin from the you know from the from the first place? Um, they took that and brought it to other fields. It was one of the things I think was most interesting about dissecting this this group of people and that early experience of PayPal. Is you know they're still doing this. And some of the even modes in which they operate, uh, I would see it when they were together, especially they would, they would you know, it was like a kind of like pushing each other, like prodding, like, oh, you know, this, that. It was a more aggressive environment than I think most sort of friend groups or, or uh, affinity groups are. But I I found this to be true over and over again, that like it wasn't just that they... Look, the easy explanation is, oh, they post PayPal, you know, the one, two people went off, they created Yelp. Yelp's been a big success, great. Like, is an incubator for for startup success. I actually think of it a little differently. It was an incubator for a way to think about the world right? Because you have people there who are doing things in diverse fields that are interesting. So an example would be David Sachs finishes PayPal, goes into Hollywood for a little while and makes a movie called Thank You for Smoking, which is nominated, he produces along with others. uh, It's nominated for two Golden Globes, right? And so it wasn't just that they went into one space and took this kind of ethic, which is by the way, like a total mix of things. And my explanation of it is never going to capture everything, but they went into a bunch of different fields, nonprofits, you know, politics, you know, uh, filmmaking, they wrote books. They've, you know, there's somebody, a really extraordinary person I interviewed there and her mission in life is scaling love is what she would like to do, wow. right? Um, there's a person who, a group of people actually, who now work at a company that's re- trying to reforest through 3 billion acres of forest around the world, right? And doing it to, in through some innovative ways. So it's not just that it was like, we got, you know, that this team got really good at creating startups. It's that the thing that it takes to create startups is the thing that all of them walked away with and did in a bunch of different places. That's that's the thing I'm wondering about, right? It's always like, what's the egg
0: and what's the chicken? Did they somehow filter for employees that had these characteristics or did they give it to them? It's probably a mix of the two. They probably like hired for a certain type of traits that are very like entrepreneurial and like autonomy and independence and this and that. But um, there, there's a great, essay by derek cyvers from like 10 years ago called um there's no Sp- speed limit and it's about like his life as a, like he was he wanted to be a musician he wanted to go to i don't berkeley school of music or something like that and he meets a guy who's like oh i can i can teach you like two semesters of of ar- arranging or whatever in in like a couple couple days like if you meet me tomorrow morning at my studio at nine and then derek cyvers shows up and the guy's like who are you and <laughs> because nobody ever shows up, right? The guy was offering this to everybody, but nobody does. And then they sit down and they like super quickly, he learns a ton of stuff. And it's like, the guy is like, the normal way of doing things is so that anybody can do it, right? But if you're much more driven, if you're much more like, if you have more of whatever it takes, you can go much, much faster. And I'm wondering if PayPal is a kind of incubator for that kind of mindset, right? It's like, don't just look at what others are doing and go at that pace, but just kind of like, go super fast, go crush it in whatever field you go. Right. I I, I don't know if that's part of the mindset that, that they show that's like, don't, I don't know, don't build that kind of traditional like bureaucratic thing where it's like, uh, I I'm fighting over my turf and my, my titles and this and that, but just kind of like, (laughs) I don't know, have impact. I don't know.
1: I, I think it's look, it's, it's a, it's a good question. And I, I will say, I think that there's a bit of like, There's a tendency, I think, to say, oh, it was just that they pre-selected for super smart people and that's how this happened. And, you know, everybody's trying to do that. Right. So, (laughs) yeah. And then there's and then there's there's also this view that says they were all like they were all tabula rasa. They were all clean slates. They came to this company and the company whipped them into shape, And then they went off. And, and I think both of those, like, you're never, it's never hundred percent of one or hundred percent of the other. Right. So I'll give you, and I can, by the way, I'm speaking, I'm not speaking in kind of vague or gauzy abstractions about that. One of the, <laughs> one of the funnier interviews I did was with someone who arrived at the company in 2002. And she described that in her interview with Peter Thiel and David Sachs, among the questions that were asked were what was your, what were your SAT scores, right? So, so this is a very, I think it's a very peculiar question to ask, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but these are adults hiring other adults. And the question is about SAT scores. And I think part of the reason is like, that can be, uh you know, arguably inaccurate, but it can be a reflection of some indicator of like, a probably mix of intelligence, grit, you got really good at test taking and you have some discipline or ability to like, do that specific thing really well. Well, that was a question that was asked, right? And 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 there was some like I, I, don't, I don't I imagine they didn't give it a ton of weight, right? I'm, I'm betting that it wasn't the biggest deal. But there's a way in which it's like, oh, this is funny. We're gonna we're gonna select for someone who who like wants to to excel at the SATs, which might be a desire to excel and get into really good college and universities, which might speak to a general sense of like wanting to try to do well in the world and be ambitious, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you're sort of like looking for some of that. And there were, there were things like, you know, they toss out puzzle questions in these interviews that you need to be pretty smart to get the answers. Now, at the same time, there was definitely like, I interviewed a, woman, uh, a gentleman named Jack Selby, who was one of the best people throughout this project and just like getting me to think about the project in a more like broad-minded way. And they asked him a puzzle question. He was like, I don't know, a super early employee, like employee 11 or 12, maybe thirteen. And Jack just cuts him off and goes, "Look, I'm not gonna be able to answer that question. Like, and you either want to hire me for this thing that I'm gonna be able to do well—business development, finance, etc.—or you don't. But like, I don't know how to solve those sorts of puzzles." And Jack comes aboard and he becomes really instrumental to the company's success, and and is actually like one of the great—I would say—he's sort of. He's one of the figures that everyone else speaks really highly of, but that no one knows who he is, right? Um, and and he's, a, he's he's really a, hugely intelligent, really a great interlocutor for this project. But you also have a room in a company for somebody to just be like, I'm not doing the puzzles, thanks. There's different um, but, types of skills, right? Yeah. Yeah, but then at the same time, you go through this intense experience together where you are solving problems together live. Shoulder to shoulder, small spaces, no sleep, seven days a week, over a period of two to four years, you can't help but be shaped by that experience. So yeah, were they maybe pre-selecting for people for some small subset of people who could have high SAT scores and and solve puzzles and whatnot? Sure. Uh, it wasn't just that. And the way, actually, the other way I know that it wasn't just that is they hired people who weren't quite a fit, you know, like there were some people who left the company. So I interviewed some people who arrived at the company and then departed relatively quickly. And it wasn't because they were intellectual slouches. They just, something happened, life happened. Somebody got it. So one, one person actually got an offer at Google and she took that and it was a lot better for her, a lot less risky. And, and frankly, like, you know, uh, I suspect saner in some ways at that time. So you're never gonna have a precise answer to the question, but I do think that it's they did pre-select for people who like had this problem-solving instinct, a certain amount of ambition, a certain amount of work ethic. You also had an environment and a series of challenges, whether that was regulatory challenges, operational challenges, fighting fraud, building the technology, achieving product market fit, scaling the team, scaling the product internationally. All of those experiences are a wonderful. Shaping mechanism for that talent. So it so it isn't one or the other. And and I and by the way, look, I I that's why I didn't write the book It's like 10 ways to build your own PayPal. Like everything's <laughs> stupid, you know? It's a series of stories and moments. But hopefully, what I did is provide enough context for why those moments mattered and what people learned from them. This is actually one of the things my editor, Stephanie Freerick, really like, I mean, I don't know the number of times she must have said it's like. She would send me back a draft or like, we'd be on the phone. she like, why does it matter? You just told me about the capture. Why does it matter, <laughs> right? And I, would, I have to go back and like ask myself the question, like, why does this matter? What in the universe of things that could be on the page about this story, why does this matter? And I have to go and explain it. I think that the, uh, any number of people I interviewed feel really fortunate that they had this experience with this group of people at this time, because it did shape them in this way. I also think there's like a certain self-sorting that happens when you want to be in a room with Max Levchin and and Julie Anderson and Amy and like you're you're that sort of person where you're like I'm going to do my best work I'm really going to you know bring my A game right it's like stories
0: about the early days of Apple and how Steve Jobs would just take great people and make them do the best work of their lives like by far just as a kind of catalyst for that and I think you you made a great point which I I, I never thought about the a startup itself is very, very intense. Like I, I did a startup for for some years, and it's like everybody does every job. Everything's on the line every day. Everything could go bankrupt. Like things are changing quickly all the time. Like that kind of situation is much more intense than uh, a regular job. And, and I think Paul Graham kind of calls it like you're condensing many, many years of your working life into a few years. So like you you're working much harder, many more hours a week, and hopefully you make many years of money all at once. But it's kind of like. <laughs> You, you kind of like you earned your money, right? If it works, that's a normal startup. But PayPal was a much bigger pressure cooker in many ways because all of the regulators, like you're, you're responsible for people's money, right? That's that's not like selling shoes on the internet, right? That's a very different kind of of like uh, responsibility for the guy coding the security or this or that. So I, I feel like like I don't want to compare it to because it's very different. But it's almost like a bunch of soldiers going to war together, and it's like super intense, and they come back and they're kind of like. You know, brothers and
1: sisters for life, and it's not and like the the, the PayPal mafia kind of feels like that. It it is. I mean, I I think um I, I I let me let me yeah I can offer a couple of reflections on it. Um, that that is a fairly accurate description of the intensity of the experience. This was a really hard four years. You know, there were there was a lot of sleeplessness. There was a lot of like struggle. There was a lot of uh, intensity within the team, conflict within the team, conflict outside of the team. You had eBay, you had Visa, you had MasterCard, you had the Secret Service, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, all these groups. There's and the dot com bust, and like there's no money in the valley, and everyone's skeptical of dot coms. And you're a dot com, but your principal achievement is like emailing money. But you're (laughs) like 80% of your users come from this place called eBay. So you don't even own your users. What? What is that? Right. And I actually went back and read all of the coverage about PayPal. So what I did was when I was first starting the project, I just looked up the word PayPal in every article that had been written from 1998 to 2003. And I read all of that just to see like what was the outside perception of the company before I go and talk to all these people. And the perception was hugely negative. Like when I was writing about both, like the IPO, the pre-IPO press, press for them is terrible. Like they're terrible. They're like, oh, this is like, this company doesn't have a revenue. You know, they, they sort there's of all these criticisms. And so I think that that pressurizing environment certainly shaped this. Now that may be not dissimilar from any startup that like has no money, is trying to figure out an answer to a question, is trying to scale and is trying to figure out how to make it all work and hiring people and growing at the same time. The The difference... I would say one of the big differences is that this team came together during the dot com bust. And so it's a very different environment, right? So, like the year, the boom years from 95 to 99, like that ends a pretty abruptly. The stock market starts to slide. People peg the stock sliding in the stock market or they blame the sliding on the failure of these dot coms, right? Sort of famously encapsulated by like pets.com or webvan, right? and so you have this feeling that like not only like not only is the pressure high because there are fraudsters and because there's eBay and everything else the pressure is also high because the stakes now are like you're sort of there you have money in the bank but you're not successful yet you've got to make the model work and all of everyone's bashing the internet right everyone's bashing .coms everyone's saying like this is actually like hopeless in '98, the default view of these companies is positive, and in 2001 or 2002, it's
0: default negative. Right? You you, yeah. you have to prove that you're even worth existing. That yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah. must be such a, a big change. And, and it was
1: actually it was, you know one of the people who did the roadshow, Jack Selby. He said to me pre-IPO, he said, you know, we would go and sit with these institutional investors. And they would, and he's like, the basic just was like, we've seen this before. Like we've seen this movie before. And it, we got burned on it the last time. Like what, what, why, why should I do this? And, and I think, you know, by the way, more, there were other takes, there were sophisticated takes on why they were successful network effects, like the, the, uh, actual kind of the cost and revenue model worked at a certain point. Once you had a certain level of scale, you could start to dial up how much you charged users if you were able to shift the account balance, like if you were to shift people's funding balances from credit cards to, to bank account funded payments, all that, all that, by the way, like it's all there, it's all on the page, it's all on sort of there, but it's really hard for someone who got who lost everything when pets.com had to go into liquidation to now look at this.com that's planning to go public that has burned $200 million, has a young management team, is wholly dependent on a third-party platform for them to look and be like, yeah, that's like a, that sounds like a good bet, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I can understand, by the way, I can understand both the team's frustration that more people didn't buy into the story. And I can understand the institutional investors' frustration when they're looking at something that looks a lot like what they just saw and what they just saw blew up. Oh, people had PTSD for years after that. Like even when
0: stuff started to really work, like when the cash started showing up, like Google was super profitable and this and that, people didn't believe it for years and years and years. There's a riff in the book I want to talk about because it's so great. Like I always knew that naming stuff is like an art and a science, but there's a, I don't know, a few paragraphs maybe where uh, you talk about um, probably a consultant that came up with the name PayPal and all of the, the different possibilities they had on the table at first, why they picked PayPal, like all, all of the details of, okay, this one has these types of letters, these types of sound, this is more symmetrical. This, it's like, it kind of blew my mind how many different factors you could analyze for a simple name, right? I knew kind of by feel, like some names are good, some names are bad, right? Some, sometimes I have this kind of feeling, but that, that, that was kind of a masterclass in like a couple of paragraphs. So that, that was really cool.
1: Well, and, and I'm certainly biased, right? Because I wrote the thing. And I'm biased because I'm a word person, but it was some of the most fun writing and research that I got to do. Um, and 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 the reason is because Esby Master, who runs a firm called Master McNeil, is the person that came up with the PayPal name. And her process for coming up with the name is so rigorous. I mean, beyond rigorous. And they go through dozens, like at the outset, it's like dozens of names. They do interviews with the team to figure out, like, what is the gestalt of this company? What are you trying to do? What are the products? Who are the customers? There are interviews. And then from that interview process, there's like a, another process where they sort of like sit and look at what trademarks are available. What How do these names work internationally? So it's this, it's this amazing several page riff in the book and i i mean i could go on about this for a while man but i'll tell you the reason it was so fun for me not just being a word person but seeing the deliberateness behind the name was really powerful like she thought about syllable counts she thought about pronunciation in foreign markets she thought about the fact that in the original conception of the name the p in the middle is supposed to be lowercase not uppercase and the reason is because and this is like one of her things is like on, if, you, if you wrote PayPal with a lowercase p in the middle, you get symmetry visually, meaning the p and the l, the first p and the last l have an ascender. The, the, the p and the l, the p and the p in the middle, uh, the, the y and the p in the middle create a descender. So you get this visual symmetry. At some point in her files, She could never, we, we really went down the rabbit hole trying to figure out when the middle p was capitalized, but she just has this note in her files that says chose PayPal and the middle p is capitalized. And she like for the life of me, like, and for her part two, she, I think she was like, I can't remember whether it was myself a graphic designer or somebody on the team, but that was the first indication that they had capitalized the middle P. But to get to the level of rigor where you're thinking about whether the middle P is capitalized or not, like it struck me as amazing. What's so interesting also is Esby Master has this quality of her level of intensity around naming is the same intensity that Max Levchin has around cryptography, and and that Peter has around financing. Meaning, in a funny way, almost through what one might call sort of like luck or coincidence, they find the person who brings the same level of like intensity and 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 just sheer dogged focus to the act of naming the company that they do on any other in any other domain. Meaning. She leaves no stone unturned. There are names that are tested. They run checks. They do all this stuff. Now, someone on the other listening who runs a naming firm might say, "Well, yeah, that's like that's what we do, right?" But for you and I, that's not. <laughs> that's well, not even what for many startups. Even today, like maybe, it, and back then,
0: it probably just wasn't as as like today. You're a startup founder, right? You listen to podcasts about startups. You read books about startup. You read Jessica Livingston's book interviewing early founders. You you you, you kind of like imbibe the culture and you get all of the best practices downloaded into your brain and then you try to start from there but back then in the 90s it was like they were just kind of making it up as they, they went right just the, the, the kind of na- naivete of uh, Elon Musk doing X it's like we're going to do everything like it's all going to be fine we're going to be done in like nine months or something like just they, they, they kind of didn't know what they were doing which is kind of a, a, an asset at that point because if they were like old industry experts they probably wouldn't even have mm-hmm. attempted that stuff yeah and the naming stuff like th- there's a parallel there too with Elon when, when earlier in the book, you talk about how like he was super mad at the zip 2 name. Cause there's a bunch of uh, homonyms and homophones. And, yeah. It's, it's a like, bunch of
1: homonyms and you don't know how to spell it when you're typing into a web browser. Exactly.
0: And after that, he never let like people cons- consultants or whatever name stuff for him. And the X.com was like, everybody's going to have a mobile device in the future. And X.com is much shorter to type on a keyboard. So it's going to be an advantage. That kind of thinking is like, I'm the, it's, it's the engineering mindset, right? It's like, I want to optimize the system. Like the name is just one more thing to optimize. And I feel like two equally, like similarly competitive products. One of them has a cooler name, has a cooler logo, has a cooler kind of brand, and it's gonna win. Like in the market, sometimes it's stuff like that that works. And so trying to think, of, take that stuff seriously. That like that's that's kind of part of the fractal of the business, right? That that part yeah. taken so seriously shows what they were thinking
1: about about like the the database or the servers or this and that, right? Well and and I would I would argue so we went we went down the rabbit hole of Esby of and, and of naming PayPal and that's a really fun part of the book. It also is just like you know, for a word nerd, there's nothing better than like discovering where a word comes from or a phrase comes from. People discounted and I hope they have a new appreciation for the level of thought that Elon did put into the X.com name because it's been it's been misunderstood because it was Became like it, you know, it didn't win. Like PayPal won and and X.com kind of got shunted aside in terms of the naming. But he had put a lot of thought into that name. And part of the reason was because you could use X as a prefix for any number of financial services. So if you were going to have like all financial services under the sun, you could have X as a prefix. He identified that if you were on a mobile device, typing in X period C O M is not hard. And at a, in a world in which mobile devices are going to get, you know, achieve increasing ubiquity, that actually matters a lot, right? And then the other thing that he identified was that at the time, the only three URLs that were one letter were X, Q, and Z. So it was rare. And like, rareness is a magnet for everything from being able to recruit, to developing, you know, to, to generating press, to, to providing a view of the world that is like exciting and different. Right. Um, and actually it was his lead investor. Mike Moritz has this great line in the book. He says, you know, it's, it's good that it had a name that didn't sound like it came out of the kitchen mixer, uh, which I thought <laughs> was like a really nice turn of phrase. And I I think that it's gotten short shrift for, for reason, you know, for understandable reasons, given what happens later in the story. But, but I did think of the naming of the thing as a fascinating little moment i myself was drawn to Esby for a couple of reasons the first is that no one really i think has given her appropriate credit uh in the world for developing the name uh, and, and and but more importantly it wasn't just a, a you know the way she describes naming for a lot of startups is it is a purely creative process you throw things against the wall and you see what it sticks she approaches it with the All the sort of methodical technique of someone who like her had a Harvard MBA, right? So she had this background where she was like, you know, she'd studied literature and poetry and she had sort of done these, like had a very sort of like humanities-based background and like loved the language. Also had a Harvard MBA and was like, this is a business decision. We've got to think about this in a business-minded way. And she brought, to my great delight, she brought the slides that she presented to the team when she announced the name, which is the reason that I have all the details in the book, is because she allowed me to share the that information to show the thought process and to show why she was making arguments for and against this or that. And I I, you know, you, you kind of have to be careful, like in you want a certain amount of objectivity, you want a certain amount of reticence, you want to you be like an objective writer, right? Like you want to kick the tires on things. But I really just loved writing. <laughs> that <section. laughs> like, It was the best. Like it was it was the place I felt most comfortable because I was like, I understand this. I'm a word person. I get it. And even years later, I asked Peter about it. And Peter, he, he's a he's a tough critic. You know, he, he has a high bar for what passes muster in terms of good work. When we spoke about it, I was this was much later in the process of doing the book. He said, you know, they did remarkable work for us. Like that work was really, really good. And so it was, you know, no sort of somebody who's seen his share of startups and names and he's seen by, I don't know, hundreds of these things come and go. He looked back and was like, she was right. That team was the team that did the, this great job developing this name and could identify it as good work even years later. So it wasn't that it was like some lightning in a bottle thing. It was actually like a process and it was a, a method to come up with a good name. I don't know. I may be overstating it. I hope I didn't no, on the I, page, but it was one of my favorite things in the whole book. It was, it was a great part of the book to read.
0: And it kind of like, I keep talking about fractals, but there's a review of your book that says something like, "Oh, it's a bunch of people coding, like sitting at computers and writing code." How exciting could that be? But like Jimmy does it, and like I, I feel, I feel there's no inherently interesting stuff out there in the world, right? It's all subjective. Mm. Like someone finds it interesting. And if you find it super interesting and you can put that on the page, it shows to the reader. And that's like, that's kind of what I felt reading it at other parts of the book. Listen, man, I could talk to you all day. I'm going to (laughs) be, I'm going to think about your time.
1: But is there anything else? People people are just getting a window into like what you and I do just regularly. (laughs) This is just like what we do. It's like, I'm just surprised we haven't talked about Mad Men or Star Wars or like Deadwood, man. Deadwood. We got to talk about (laughs) Deadwood. No, but before we go,
0: I just want to like, I I, I like when interviewers do this. So I'm going to pretend I'm an interviewer and say, Like, Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Anything I forgot? Like, I think maybe there's something super cool that I just won't ask
1: about, but if if anything comes to mind, I'd love to hear it. You know, here's actually something interesting. It's something you and I've talked about before, and it's not something I fully appreciated until I did this book, which is this idea, in my mind, I call it sort of creative cross training, right? And you and I have talked about like drawing lessons from different mediums that are not the core medium and bringing them back into the thing that you're working on, right? Yeah. and so i'll make just it's a it's a really just recommendations in the course of writing this book i absorbed watched and rewatched many times the Defiant Ones, which is this four-part series that was originally on HBO, and it was about Dr. Dre, the rapper Dr. Dre, and Jimmy Iovine, and their kind of friendship and the, the group of people who are around them, which is like some of the leading lights in music for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, right? So U2, Bruce Springsteen, Snoop Dogg, uh, everyone who's anyone, Patty Smith, you know, like just some of the biggest, Lady Gaga, some of the biggest people on the planet. That series, uh, I, I am a fan of it. I don't know anyone who was involved in its creation, but they deserve enormous credit for what they made because it was the story of lives and businesses being built simultaneously, meaning it was the life of Dr. Drain, the life of Jimmy Iovine, but also creating Beats headphones or creating Death Row records or creating Interscope records. I That was one thing that like really inspired me as I was doing this book. The second thing that really inspired me was um, The Last Dance, which was a sort of look at the Chicago Bulls, right? And that dynamic. Because you can you can see like teams are different. Studying a team is just different than studying an individual, right? And then, like the challenge of the PayPal story is the same thing as the challenge of the Bulls. With the Bulls, you sort of like you can go from Jordan and then work your way around, right? But with PayPal, I just sort of think about like, all right, you've got Levchin, you've got Musk, you've got this, you get got that. Who do, you, who do you, what do you do here? So I was really inspired by the way that The Last Dance, like would do little like cuts, you know, cuts to other people. Like you'd learn about Dennis Rodman's life or you'd learn about John Paxton. and You know, some of the most moving stuff is Steve Kerr and like losing his father and, and, and all of that, like the stuff that, you know, his father was killed in Beirut. So I watched and rewatched that to really like understand it and then sort of apply it. And I don't know that any of it happened directly, but it certainly happened indirectly. And then I would say that like one of the books that I read that I found best in terms of a, a guide for what questions to ask was The Everything Store by Brad Stone. I find that Brad's, that book, I haven't read the new one uh, in all honesty. I, I have just had too much on my plate, but that book, the reason I knew to go ask about the PayPal name is because Brad goes and goes down a whole rabbit hole about the Amazon name. The reason that I stood in front of the offices on university Avenue And like, just like try to peek in and like walk around and sort of get a feel for Palo Alto was because Brad did that. Like, he had a really good description of what their first offices were like at Amazon. And so it was a book I read. Like, I mean, it's an embarrassing number of times I read and reread. It was basically like what I read for several years. And I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. Like, it's just such a good look at the creation of the company. And it's written with a huge amount of like, I would say generosity of spirit, and also a focus—not just on Bezos, because everything can be about Bezos, right? He becomes the sort of like center of the, the ecosystem. He he really dug in and found folks who were in and around and nearby, and people who were packing the books that were being sold, and people who were like on the other side of these struggles. I find it—I found it to be a really great book. I I don't know enough about the Amazon story to know like whether where it ranks in terms of other books. But I found that the quality of it from a narrative perspective, from a research perspective, I was just really impressed, and so we always you and I always talk about it, like over Twitter and' show, like things that they feed into our work. Those are the rivers that fed into PayPal, those sort of three I mean there are many others, right um, but those were those are definitely three of them. I love that I think like they say
0: books are made of books, right? It's like any any like crafts person to make it seem easy and natural like there's so much work that goes into that and to even know kind of what to attempt you have to you know find what you like elsewhere and then then get inspired from that like people who think that you just like a, a blank slate person just sits at a keyboard and and as knows how to write as personality knows what to ask as a question Like that's not how it works so i i just love love that love those uh, i'm gonna have to watch defiant ones I, it's been on my list for years but i've never gotten around to it so i'm gonna bump it up for sure because I, I i'm not into sports i've never watched sports right but the last dance was amazing i just and it's loved about than- sports yeah and no it's that, that's exactly why it's about like i have this this uh this love for stories about people who have like these great goals and ambitions and they work super hard at them and like life throws everything at them and they don't give up and they get better little by little and everybody yep. doubts them and they keep going. And Like that kind of arc is like, it's like catnip to me, right? I, I just love that yeah. stuff. Like the, the last dance kind of add part of that and add part of just the craftsman mind, mindset. Cal Newport talks a lot about this, where if you want to love what you do, it helps a lot to be good at it. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to start something and just love it. Like it's my passion. No, no, find something that you can be reasonably good at, that you think like fits yeah. certain criteria and then get super good at it. And then you're going to like it. Right. So yes. a lot of these stories are, are are about people who are like, okay, I found this kind of niche, this kind of place where I can be good. And then they just like take a simple idea and take it super seriously and
1: become the best in the world at that stuff. And like, the, uh, I don't know. I love that stuff. So no, I, and, and look, we should, let's riff on this for a second, because this is really important, right? Because yep. people generally listening to the podcast for like a way to, to get better at things or some knowledge they can take away or something they might find interesting. Like someone who loved Jiro Dreams of Sushi or Free Solo will also, I think, love The Defiant Ones and Last Dance for some of the same reasons, which is like studying excellence is fascinating. Like studying people who are excellent is the phenomenally interesting thing because you, you notice a few things. First is it's rarely ever just that they lucked into their success. But the second is you also see the constellation of chance things that happen that turn them into a success and so you 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 gain a healthy appreciation for hard work and for like you know having ambition and and wanting to apply yourself and just being wanting to be bored every day with what you're doing you also see that like once you do that in some ways like the universe starts to bend things in your direction or you find the right person or something happens and it never happens perfectly and goodness knows there are plenty of people who do all the all the right things and then don't have the right outcome, right. Or something happens or some, you know, tragedy befalls them. But I think that there's a reason that like, it's fun to study the little micro things that happen in these like lives that are big, larger than life. And, and it's, it's, it's a big part of like what I hope people take away from the PayPal book is, is this, this sense that like there's little tiny clues and like little clever moments that you can appreciate. But for me that the, um, the defiant ones does that in particular with the success of Dr. Dre, where you just see like his commitment to the craft of creating music, meaning like the actual engineering of music. I didn't know that about him before, um, and I, I find that stuff like infinitely interesting. As you know,
0: yeah, I, I feel like all these all these stories. There's always a few kind of like meta points, I guess, that that come over and over again. Like one of them, and and I sometimes tell this to people who ask me about like writing for a long, long time, it's going to look like nothing's happening. Like the exponential curve, like the the, the three quarters of the, the chart is like, the graph is barely moving at all. And then it starts to go up. But almost everybody gives up in that first part before they start to get traction, right? So by definition, when you hear about someone's success, it's when the success has happened. So it looks like it just happened mm-hmm. for them. But you don't see the five or 10 years before when they were just grinding it out and getting a little better. And it's like the 80-20 rule. But when you, you drill down into it, it's like, the last 2% of, of skill, is, it takes like 80% of the effort, right? So, yeah. so th- that's, that's, that's one thing I keep seeing over and over again. It, it feels like that's why you need this intrinsic motivation for stuff. Like Like when mm. you're writing a book, if it takes you, couple years, three years for, I don't know how long it took you for this one, but if, if, are, <laughs> if all your motivation was external, right. If you were like, I want the glory, I want the, the fancy interviews with Liberty. This is, this is, this is what's going to make me like, that doesn't work. Right. It, it's, no. it doesn't last long enough. It takes too long. Like, but if you love the thing in itself, like if you love as you're doing it, that's how you can get super good. Right. Cause if you don't yeah. love it as you're doing it, if you're doing it for the money and the fame and this and that, like, you're going to give up before you get there for sure.
1: Right. Well, and also like readers, I think can tell. Like, I mean, readers like it reflects in the work itself. Um, No, like, there's just decisions I made editorially that you would not make if you didn't just love the nerdiness and some of the very fine grain details. Because you don't go through hundreds of thousands of pages of email because you think you're going to be famous. And I I didn't. I really. I mean, I sort of knew this book had potential. I didn't know the culture would respond to it the way it has. It's really nice, but. The, the 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 real funny, the really funny thing is like you and I have been speaking about this for years now and you've seen like the development and the kind of progression of it in a way that like I think you can appreciate like there's tiny little wins that you find that make and like tiny little victories that you score. But that is never, ever related to the actual sort of like end state out, outcome of the thing. It's, it's far more intrinsic. I mean, you can't ignore the extrinsic stuff, but it, there's a way in which like I, I do find a lot of. Uh, symmetry with other people where it's like me just getting the one syllable right on a song lyric can be like the most Uh, satisfying thing getting getting i'm sure like the exact right image in a newsletter and like knowing that you're going to make people laugh or like finding the one fact in a podcast that nobody else did and then you're able to do that as a block quote and people are blown away like there is some massive satisfaction in those things Uh, uh, this is my curse i want
0: to talk about three different things at the same time (laughs) i'm going to try to remember them one of them is Time flies. It's been so long. I remember when the book was supposed to be about something else, right? Right,
1: right, exactly. And
0: yeah, when you talk about being a a lover of words, and it it shows so much. Like it's like the little joke I saw about funding secured, or all these (laughs) like we talk about. What use that word there? And you're like, oh, the alliteration and this and like that's the kind of stuff that you do because, like you say, like you really care, right? You're really like spending like minutes and minutes on the word choice, right? And and you can't do that just for others because the minutes, the payback on the minutes is not like, oh, now it's going to blow up because of that word choice. But no, the satisfaction, and even if 5% of readers are like, oh, I see what you did there. Like, oh, right, that was cool. exactly. Like, that, that, that's why I do it in the newsletter. Like w- One of the stuff I, I've written at the top of my notes is like, write in your own voice. And my hmm. goal is for someone to be able to read what I wrote without a byline, without any of the like recognizable, like colors and stuff and just know oh yeah this sounds like liberty like if i can achieve that like that's my goal right i do it because it's fun for me if it's not fun for me i'm just gonna stop doing it so any other goals later in in, in the project are not gonna get accomplished so that yeah that's why the stupid dad jokes and emojis and (laughs) i'm just having fun right i'm not trying to sound like professional or whatever so right i I don't know i it shows like it it shows in the care of the of the stuff right Of of the end result, hopefully.
1: Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, I hope it does and we'll see. But the the, the part of it that is like, I like Cal Newport's work on craft. It's like some work that like we really urgently need. Craft also takes time. Like the, the thing that's interesting about working on a book for so long, people seem to be impressed that I stuck with it for as long as I did. And I mean, that's great. Like I'm gratified, except that I didn't know any other way to do this. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, it's like not like, I'm sure there's somebody who's more efficient, who could have gotten the book done better and more efficiently and done it in two years instead of five, six, whatever. But inefficiency actually like is the reason that it worked. And I'll give you an example of how. There were, there was a person on the list of employees. whose name was Robert Frezza. And I like naturally, like I like went and tried to find him on on LinkedIn and, and learned that he had passed away while working there. And so, like, normally that's where the trail goes cold, right? But I knew that, like, well, he had probably had like relatives, like, he probably had people who outlived him. And I contacted his father and his father had, like, you know, his son had died when he was 22, but his father was really gracious and generous. He wrote back to me when I got on the phone with me, sent me his son's emails from his days at the company and walked me through what working at the company had meant to his son. Wow a more efficient process wouldn't leave room for contacting the relatives of deceased people who are on the employee roster. I did this with another employee as well, but that story forms the end of chapter 15. And it's one of the, to me, the most important stories in the book. It shows what someone can do at a really young age. It shows there's a a, a lot in it, but I, I think let's like sort of sound a note in defense of inefficiency or in defense of long, like of endurance. Right. Um, just cause there's something about time too, that allows these ideas to marinate and to work and to be worked on. And that's like, it's, I don't know if it's the most enjoyable things. You wake up after year four and you're like, I can't believe I'm still working on this freaking book. But <laughs> it does. It does allow for like new discoveries along the way.
0: To me, it's kind of a manifestation of the craftsman mindset. Uh, It reminds me of uh, an anecdote by Steve Jobs about his father. And he was telling me about building furniture. And he was talking about how, like, even the piece at the back of the furniture that nobody will see, the wood there has to be as nice as the rest, right? People Mm -hmm. just want to be do it as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Like, the front looks nice and the back is a piece of crap, right? And so when when Jobs made the, the Mac, like, the motherboard layout was exquisitely, like, laid out to be, very nice looking, very symmetrical. They add the people working on it, sign their names to it, like oh, because wow. real artists sign their work. And like, <laughs> that kind of mindset, that's not efficient, that's not cost, like, but that's how you do really good stuff. So if you keep yeah. your eye on the, the right goal, right? If your goal is to do quality, then by rushing, you're not achieving your goal, right? Right. If your goal is to do it as quickly as possible, then that's a different goal, but the result will not be the same. So no, I I, I totally, I, I think more people need, need to hear this because in this world, it's all about, all about like, how can I as quickly as possible, like become a YouTube influencer or whatever? Like, it's like, yeah, but maybe if you do it the right way, like it's not going to be a bunch of empty calories. Like the people like, get to know you and they follow you because they like you as who you are instead of because you got some viral crazy stuff going on and then they leave as quickly as they came. And
1: I don't know. That It feels like it's building stronger, right? Yeah, I think, there's, I think there's a balance to be struck, right? I mean, most people probably shouldn't like just go away for half decade and not release anything and then release <laughs> something. It's like, it's like a bad model. Like, don't imitate me because I'm terrible I gotta like, terrible get to tweet right? more. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's like an online creator. I'm like utterly used to like, I deserve like an F, like an, you know, in in terms of just creation and output. The the thing that I think is interesting is I, I woke up every day with this project for so long. I I know for a fact that there were, Edits I made in year three that are still in the book, but they were edits to things I wrote in like year one. And And I don't, but I think those intervening two years are the reason that those edits are good, right? Meaning like it actually like took that amount of time because it just took me that long to assemble the information and to make sense of it and then to live with it in my head and sort of think about like, where's this going to fit or how's this going to work or how do you make this example instead of this example, right? Even at by the way, even at the very, very, very end, I drove my publisher crazy with the number of edits I made because I just kept, I I interviewed two people who were Exceedingly important to the story. I wanted to tell their stories, but it took me a while to get them on the phone or, or get meet them in person. And I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna cut corners. I wasn't gonna skimp. And so we had to push the publication date and do all sorts of other crazy things internally to get it done. But like, hey, why not? You know, if you're gonna do something, and it sounds like this sounds like a. It it also sounds like it's too cliche or maybe too preachy because it's also there's a balancing act between that and shipping actual work, right? And I'm sure he, like, you feel that. like It's how, how do you balance quality with output. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I could revise as much as you do. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe but not. There's but... one thing
0: you said, and it's going to be sound kind of weird, but it made me think of The Princess Bride. <laughs> At the end, Inigo is like, I've been in the revenge business for so long. Now that it's done, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life, right? And you said, "Like I, I thought about this book every day for years. Do you feel kind of a little empty now like, that, that, that like, the bird is out of the nest and like, or yes. are you already on the next project? Is, is the,
1: no, How do you balance feel, this
0: kind of transition?
1: No, I feel super empty. Like if uh, you and I know <laughs> each other long enough that I can like freely admit that I'm glad the book is out. I'm glad it's being received well. And I'm really proud of it and proud of what it took to create it. I already miss it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 you know, it sounds like it sounds like you sort of miss torture and maybe that is what it is. But I miss the person who writes you back after the third note that you send them because you've been waiting to talk to them. I miss... A discovery or a story that I've never heard about until the one person tells it to me or an email I find. So I do miss it. I, at some point though, you do have to like, you have to like cut and ship and move on to the next thing. But I miss the work. I miss the actual, like waking up at four o'clock in the morning every day and just like laboring on this thing and trying to get my head around these people. I miss that a lot. It's hard not to miss. It was a big part of my life. John Malloy has this thing at the end of the book. He's the board member, he re, he's the earliest board member of the company, one of them, not the earliest. He's one of the early investors and board members at the company. And he says that one of the things that happened after the sale to eBay is that he started to notice that like Max Levchin was not as happy as he normally was. And he says it because because you get into this phase of it sort of like a loss. Like you, he describes, he's like, it's there's something of a loss there. It's akin to a kind of depression. Right. right. And I see that in other creative friends. I have an artist friend who lives down the street from me and we talk about art and creativity a lot. And she says, you know, there's this real sadness after you finish up an exhibition or a show or even a big painting where like, it's become the total focus of your intention of attention. You're like not showering. You're like in a zone and no one understands that zone. They don't get it. They're like, why can't you just stop at five? And you're like, I don't know how to stop it. (laughs) I don't know how. And, and then you're out of it and it's gone. And you're like, Well, it's gone. Like what happened to it? I definitely feel a little bit of that. It's buoyed by having conversations like this, like being able to actually talk about the process or talk about the book itself, especially on podcasts, which aren't sound bites. They're fun. You know, it's like longer freewheeling stuff yeah
0: that that that's why I wanted this to be more a conversation and more about making the book like when I post this in the in the text i'm gonna link to other interviews that you've done on other podcasts, and these talk more about what's in the book and I think that's great yes. too I think people will be very interested but i I, I wanted to get kind of like zoom up one level, because I think that's also very interesting. When I was talking about like you load the book in RAM, right? It's kind of in your head. Right. That's probably kind of why you can't stop too much, right? If you, if you get too far away from it, it's hard to get back. But then when you right. transition to a new book, it must take a while before the kind of richness of that project Gets to a level that's similar to the old book, right? Because at first yes. it's a bunch of empty drawers, a bunch of empty note files, right? It's not as exciting. Yeah. But after a few months, probably or whatever it is, then the, the new book has kind of the same richness,
1: and you can kind of hang your hat to it. Probably, I, I'm guessing. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right. You you find a new. A new thing to pour your love and your time into and your kind of energy into right i hope i can do it more sustainably than i did over the last like little while with this one but i you know i'm it's a look you chase that you chase the the high i mean it's <laughs> like it's like what it is it's like a it's the, it's the high of discovery it's the high of discovery and creation it's the high of creating new things in the world and you hope that people like them you you mentioned earlier
0: uh, well about like, how do you miss torture? Like (laughs) I I wrote something about type one fun versus type two fun, right? Stuff that's fun in the moment or stuff that's fun when you look back at it. Is writing to you more type two where while you're doing it, it's super hard, but then you're super glad you did it kind of looking back or is it still type one fun too as you do it? It's
1: like, ah, it's great. I I, I'd do it this all day if I didn't have any other obligations, right? It's more type two than type one for sure type there's a type though that's type type 1 and type 1 is editing um so meaning like the there's there's writing which is like the creation of raw new material meaning just on un, like unpolished stuff but then there's like editing and polishing. That's like that's that's type one stuff. You're like, whoa, this is so fun! I get to edit this paragraph for the 14th time. Oh my god, it's so much better. Look, I cut a word out of it. it's amazing. Look at that. And I can go back. By the way, we we've, we've talked about this. Like I can go back and point to specific paragraphs and show you the exact development of them. Right? Oh yeah, I I I told you about like a line, and you're yeah. like, oh yeah,
0: I, I woke up in the morning and I thought about this maybe this way, and it's like eh, 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 the 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 metadata about the book in your brain is like probably <laughs> terrifying <terabytes, insane>, <laughs> right
1: yeah but there's but the type 1 is in editing and there's a there's so it's not all that like writing is agony and then you only feel good once you've written i mean i for me that's not true but the the real type 1 fun is in i've got raw material how do you make it sing how do you make it really come to life that's that's where the fun really is i'm lucky that i i have type 1
0: fun writing quickly because that's all i can do right if yes. I spend like a week on something, like
1: people will be like, I'm missing two editions," right? <laughs> but I think you'll find you're going to move in the, I mean, I suspect that in the next five, if I had to, ma- if I had to hazard a guess, I think you're going to find some random question or project. And you might not do a book length treatment of it, but you'll probably spend a little while like making it longer. And you'll find that it actually like tr- stretches different muscles. So I suspect what you would do is like one of your one of your. Pet passions, Deadwood. I could see a long essay from you about like Deadwood, right? Meaning like you've you've marinated it for so long, and you're like, I just have to get this out, but you're not going to get it out in a paragraph. You're going to get it out, and like you're, it's going to just keep. And then, and then it's cool. Cause then your audience also gets the, ver- I mean, frankly, I want to read that <laughs> essay now, right? Like, it's like your, your audience would get the benefit of that being a little different than what you normally do. And it's good for you. I actually think you're going to do that. And it's, it's exciting. It's why your stuff is exciting to see. Cause there are some things where you're like, you'll hit a note on it, but then I'll see the same note again. I'm like, Oh, there's a pattern developing here. And I'm really excited for the next time that he talks about this. And so, I mean, I, I would encourage you to like, you know, I encourage everybody, but you in particular find that thing and then just go and do 5,000 words and let's see what happens. I I think you're probably right because I'm
0: already kind of like simmering some of those. I've got one written that I've never published. I don't know why it's like, I don't know, like 20 pages on like uh, aging, aging research
1: and rejuvenation therapies and stuff like that oh, you, I mean, now you have to. Now it's like not, this is like not even a question.
0: No, I can't remember if it was you or David from Founders Podcast, but someone, I, I was talking about Deadwood, right? Because I talk about Deadwood and there's this book coming yeah. out soon. Well, it was probably you. Uh, there's this book by Matt size uh, He's a, a TV critic. and he, Right. Exactly. We were talking so about this. He's coming out yeah. with this book like that's a passion project of his. He interviewed everybody in the cast and the crew, the, the writers. Like he was on set when they were filming Deadwood and it's coming out soon. And you were telling me like, go interview him, right? Because because he spent his life on that stuff yes. and he's probably not got nobody to talk about. Right? He's got plenty of people probably want like a, a kind of a normal interview, but maybe not a fan kind of the way that I mm-hmm. am that's going to geek out about it. So I, I, that's that's
1: one thing I, I'll try to do. Yes. I, I'll see
0: if he, he wants to, but that, that would be cool.
1: It's, by the way, this is like actually like a sort of broad-based, broad thought about this, right? Which is one of the things that I value about you and I and our interactions and notes we trade and things like that. And even this interview is, like there's so much underneath any one of the decisions in a book or a newsletter or an idea. And like, it's very rare actually that people who write or do these things get to nerd out. Like they don't get to talk to anyone about the thing. Cause no one actually like <laughs> wants to know about these little pickyune details and all the like tiny intersections and things. I remember, I remember there were a couple of people in the PayPal during the part of the whole thing. And, and, and like someone, someone had, I was interviewing someone and I asked him about something and he said, he's like. I mean, I, I'm happy to tell you, but like, are you sure anybody's gonna care <laughs> about this? <laughs> like it's like such a small thing, right? But then on the other side of it, like, you know, if you point to a paragraph or a section in the book, doing the you know, the Talmudic exegesis of that, like doing the like re- like really going in, like, here's why, and here's this, and here's this echo, and here's why I reference the Bible, and this is where I got this phrase. That's actually like exciting for people who make things. Um, and so I I don't know, I think uh, more people should do that. One thing that maybe people who don't create
0: don't realize, but what you see is the tip of the iceberg, right? So if the book is 400 pages, there's like Mm -hmm. probably thousands of pages and hours of recordings. If you do a 400 page book with 400 pages of research, it's going to be crap, right? (laughs) It's all of this extra work that you do, caring about all of the details. Once you have them, then you can select the really interesting one. Then you can put them in context. Then you really understand and it shows on the page. So all of that stuff that's yes. not making it to the book is making it to the book indirectly. It's the same with the newsletter. I have these right. notes. There's maybe 10% of stuff that makes it to the newsletter and everything else like I read, I, I think about, I make a note, it sits in Notion for a while and I can, and then it, it goes into cold storage. I have these files called cold storage with like pictures of icebergs at the top. And it's like all the notes I never got to for the newsletter. <laughs> and they're like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of items that were interesting enough for me to write about, but I never had the space. Right, I never found the time to put them in. There's always something else coming in front of them in the queue. So writing a book is kind of similar. You don't have the kind of the time pressure of the the, the treadmill of a newsletter, but you still are accumulating all that stuff to kind of like distill it into this extract, yeah. of extra potent stuff, right? That comes out at the end. So that's great. Right.
1: Cool. Yeah, it's also it leaves you with a lot of regret. <laughs> and now you're making <laughs> yeah. me think about all the great stories I didn't tell. Right? Where it's like, no, oh, that's that's so the, the ten
0: year edition. Right? It's going to have a new preface or a right, new exactly. chapter it's, at the it, end
1: or exactly. Yeah, they're going my publisher's going to kill me if I try to do that. <laughs> All right, man. I, I think I'm going to let you uh go back to the homeschool maybe, I don't know. Thank you. No, this was no, no, no. I mean, I'm, today I'm I'm just sort of gearing up for the the week ahead and and also just like kind of keeping life in in order and actually it's funny there's a story that ends the book. We end in a prison. Um, because the the PayPal mafia became inspiring for this group of prisoners in a prison. So I'm actually doing the book launch event at the prison tomorrow at 8.30. So the person, Chris Wilson, who drew inspiration from that story, he and I are going with copies of both of our books and we're going to do a book talk there. Um, Actually, I haven't told anybody about it. So you're the first person to know about it really outside of my publisher. But I thought it was a really cool way to memorialize the whole thing. Chris is really excited about it. And we're speaking to fourth level prisoners at that Patuxent institution, so it's going to be really, uh, you know, hopefully uh, share something that's valuable. Awesome! And thank you for the ten books that I'm going to give away tonight.
0: Yeah, I'm going to. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited for your audience to take my bingo machine or something <laughs> and draw some balls out of it. That's really funny. Well, thank you for taking so much time to talk about it. This was this was great. It's it's all my pleasure, man. And let's let's do this again. That sometime. sounds great. All right. Have a you good too. day. Bye. Bye.